The morning scripture is Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have, you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you, Rachel. So this past summer, the church graciously gave me the opportunity to go away on sabbatical. And so for, for two months, I was absolved of all responsibilities here at the church. And one of, what that meant, actually, is that for the first time in 15 years, I didn't have to go to church. For the first time in 15 years, I, I, before I was here, I served as a, as a music minister in three different churches, in three different states, and there were a few little breaks in between, but not much, like a, a week or two here or there where I had a break in between. And so for the most part, this was my first break in 15 years where I didn't, I didn't have obligations to be at church, and so I sort of, I wondered coming into that sabbatical and in the weeks and months coming into it, like, what would I, what would I want to do? Would I, would I, would I want to go to church every week or every, every week? Would I want to, would I want to maybe sleep in a few times and, uh, you know, I don't know, watch some cartoons or something? How, what would, would I want just sort of a break? What would sort of my attitude be towards going to church as I came into my sabbatical? Today we're continuing in our series on the book of Colossians, and it is uh, we're a series in which we're looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the, the city of Colossae in what would now be modern-day Turkey, and he wrote this letter to them about 20 or 30 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what we've seen is that the central thing he wants to drive home to the people uh, in this community, is that Jesus is Lord over all. 
That's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Is A Christian believes that Jesus is Lord over all, that the heart of the Christian faith is that God himself came to this earth in the person of Jesus, in the human being Jesus. He came for us, and then he died for us to forgive us of our sin. And then he rose from the grave to demonstrate his victory over death, to usher in his coming kingdom, to, and, of course, to, to demonstrate that he really is Lord over all. And so, so Paul is just reminding them of this. He wants them to remember that Jesus is Lord over all, and that if he is Lord over all, well, then that means some things. And what we saw last week, and we looked at the same passage. Some of you might have wondered if Rachel got it wrong and read last week's passage. Well, she did, but it's also this week's passage because there's a few more things I want to draw out from this passage. But what we saw last week is that, is that what it means if Jesus is Lord over all is that we are called to submit our behavior to him, that he needs to be Lord over our behavior, that it just makes sense. That if he's the one running things, then the abundant life, the best way to live is to submit to the authority of this Lord. And we know he's a good God. We know he's a good person to submit to because he died for us. So he demonstrated that he is a benevolent Lord. And so Paul wants us to see that we should submit to that. And what that means, what it means to surrender our behavior is, as we saw, it means to put sin to death. Put sin to death, put, put rage and anger and lust and slander and malice to put that to death and to clothe ourselves, to clothe ourselves with good deeds, to put on patience and gentleness and, and kindness, right? to, to put on these, these good deeds, to clothe ourselves with these good deeds as a way of living our lives. But then what we also saw was that actually before you can do that, before you can clothe yourselves with patience and kindness and goodness and, 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 and whatnot, before you can clothe yourself with these things, we actually first need to clothe ourselves with God himself. That we've got to put Christ on first. We've got to, we've got to put God on first as an undergarment over which then we can clothe ourselves with these good deeds. Because we saw that if you try to put on these good deeds without an undergarment, it's a little bit like putting on a wool sweater without an undergarment. That our good deeds are sort of like a wool sweater. And that if, they're, if they just try to get put on, they're actually kind of irritating to the skin. That it's really difficult to be a kind and patient and generous person to just sort of put that on, to kind of muster up the strength to do it. It's like trying to put on a wool sweater where you can wear that wool sweater for a little while, but then it starts to irritate, and it's, you get to that point where you just, you just need to rip it off. And that the same thing is true with kindness and patience, and that you can, you can kind of try to be kind and patient for a little while, um, but then it just gets too irritating, and then you come home from work and you yell at your spouse and all of that because you could, could only contain it for a little while. It's like, it's like a wool sweater that just, that just kind of irritates you. And, and so what we discovered is that what this means is to... To clothe yourself with Christ is to die to yourself. It's to die to yourself and to see that your worth and your value are in nothing but in God's grace. And that when you can rest in that, you see, when you can rest in that, then your, 
your good deeds can truly be selfless. You see, the problem with just trying to put on good deeds without dying to yourself first is that they end up actually being selfish. They really do because you become a person where your worth and your value is caught up in your kindness and your generosity and your patience. And so you can actually end up becoming incredibly prideful about how humble you are. And so you, you start you start getting your worth and your value about how, you know, I'm better than that person. I, I show kindness and patience, and I don't, bite, I don't fight back. And it, it kind of builds in you. But see, there's this disconnect here, because what you're asked, being asked to do is selfless acts, but what's actually motivating you is something selfish, and there's this disconnect, which is why for a person who's doing that, even their good deeds, there's something funny about them. Right there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a bite to their patience. There's a there's something about it that doesn't seem quite so authentic. Right, this is what moralism is. This is what moralistic people do: is that they try to put on these good deeds, but there's there's this sort of this irritability about them that ultimately, for many moralistic people, ultimately it'll snap. There'll come a point when it just they just sort of snap just like you've been wearing this wool sweater and you can't take it much longer so you just rip it off. And so what we discovered is that to, to, before you can put on these good deeds of kindness and generosity and, and whatnot, we first got to put on Christ himself, clothe ourselves in Christ himself. That, that the language actually here that's used is, is talking about, about letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Now, see, this is what we see in verse 15. So he's, he's talked about all these things that we're called to do. What does it look like when we make Christ Lord over our behavior? And he shows us all of these things. And now he's going to tell us, well, how, you know, how do we do this? How do we get the undergarment on? And he doesn't use this metaphor in this case. He just simply says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So it, it, this is another way of saying put on Christ. It's about, it's about Christ ruling in your heart and then your behavior flowing out of your out of your heart. And so the question then we need to answer today is, how do I get Christ to rule in my heart? On a day-to-day basis, on a weekly basis, how do, I, how do I continue to get Christ to rule in my heart? How do I put on Christ regularly throughout my life? And the answer here that, that emerges from this text may surprise you. Here's what it is. Through religion. (laughs) The way that we put on Christ is actually through religious activities. This is what he goes on to say here. So he says, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts towards God. He's saying the way that we put on Christ, the way that we enable Christ to dwell in our hearts is through religion. Now, this is where, you know, this is kind of interesting, right? Because a couple weeks ago, we saw Paul being very critical of religion, actually, to the point where you almost would wonder if he was anti-religion. But what we're seeing is here is that he's not anti-religion. He's just anti-religion that misses the whole point of what religion's for. And very simply, this is what religion is for. Religion is a means by which we put on Christ. 
And so if Christ isn't the center of your religion, well, then this is why Paul says it gets very anti-religion, because if Christ isn't the reason you're doing it, then it's going to go in all kinds of weird directions that are not going to be helpful. He's saying the, the purpose of religion, what is a definition of religion? Is It is those individual and corporate practices that we engage in in order to put on Christ. It is those individual and corporate practices that we engage in that enable Christ to begin to dwell in our hearts. So what are some of the implications of this for our religious practices? Well, the first thing that I think emerges here quite straightforwardly is that our religious practices they need to be practices that engage not just the mind, but the heart. That we're after the heart, we're not just after the mind. Notice that, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, he's saying let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And so he's, he's saying it's about more than just, just getting the mind. And I, uh, I've shared this before. There's a, a, a book that I read in recent years, one of my favorite books in recent years, the book called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. And in that book, he highlights, again, I've shared this before, he highlights that the modern world uh, has been, for hundreds of years now, its understanding of the human person has been very caught up in and based on the philosophy of Rene Descartes, who is sort of one of the fathers of, of modernity. And his, his famous statement is, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. So, his, his basis, his foundation on which you could build knowledge about really anything, but especially about the human person, was thinking, I think, therefore I am. So the most fundamental characteristic of a human being within the modern world was that we're thinking things. We're almost like brains on a stick is, is sort of how we're seen. And so, and so the idea in the modern world is that if you want to shape a person, you've got to shape their mind. That's what it's all about. It's all about shaping their mind. And what, what Smith, James K. Smith points out is that this is not at all a, a biblical anthropology, that instead what, what the Bible really helps us to see is that there's something even more fundamental than even what you think. Now, what you think is important. It's not throwing that out. But there's something even, even underneath that that is even almost more foundational, something that is, happens at a, as he calls it, a precognitive level. And he says that what you are most fundamentally is actually what you love and what you desire. And, of course, a place where this plays itself out, we see this happening in the Scriptures, is in Paul's famous passage in his letter to the Romans. When he talks about it, he says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't do, or excuse me, the, excuse me, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Now, what he's actually saying is, is that the things that I, I think I want to do, I can't do, but what, he, what, he's, what the point is is that what you think you want may not actually be what you really want. I want, you know, I, it's like, I, I, want to, uh, I want to be a good husband, but I'm a terrible husband. Well, maybe there's something deeper in you that, but at a precognitive level that doesn't really want to do that. And that always ends up overriding whatever it is you think that you want. And so this is what he's getting at, that, that we are fundamentally desiring creatures, that that's more fundamental than even, than even what we think. And so... Our practices, the things that we engage in, our religious practices, have to be able to engage not just the mind, but also the heart as well. 
And this is why, this is why we see in here the importance of music. Isn't it interesting? I mean, he tells us about how to, how we should live our lives and, and, then, and, and then how we need to be obedient to the, this way of living and then let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and, and then let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Look at this. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts towards God. Now, what's interesting, what's interesting about this is, is that actually... Uh, I, I don't actually think this translation quite gets it right, to be completely honest with you. That you'll notice here that it seems like Paul's talking about two different things. So he, on one end, he's saying, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And then on the other hand, it seems like he's saying, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. Right? So these two different things. But what's, what's interesting is that... It, the word and that you see in there isn't actually in the original. There is no conjoining and that what you actually have, not to get too technical here, but there's the, the, the second half of it is a series of participles which modify what's coming before it. And so actually what it seems is likely that he's actually saying is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through songs, through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And what's interesting is that the more recent version of the NIV, in fact, Rachel almost read that, that's exactly what it says. They've actually changed that. It says that you teach and admonish through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And you see, if you're caught up in a modern way of thinking where it's all about just your mind, that might seem kind of strange. But when you come to understand that the goal isn't just to get the mind, but to get the heart, all of a sudden this begins to make a little bit more sense. That through our singing, that music has a way of getting at your heart in a way that words alone can't. And so you see, this is why it is so important. Husbands, it is really important that your wives see you singing out. Wives, it is important that your husbands see you singing out. Parents, it's important that your children see you singing out. That's, that's why we try to keep the children in here during the music because it's important for the children to see and hear their, their parents singing out because in doing that, we are teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. And we're doing it in a way that can get it, not just the mind, but also at the heart. The second thing that emerges from this is that we, if what we're after is the heart, we, we need to not be afraid of emotion in church. We need to not be afraid of emotion in church. That If what we're after is what we love, you know, when you really love something, there's something emotional about that. When you fall in love with someone, there are emotions that are involved. And so, so we need to not be afraid of emotion in church because this is what we're after. We're after loving God, not just knowing more about God or knowing the right things, but actually loving and desiring God. So we can't be afraid of emotion. Now, of course, I understand that we, we have to be careful of what is sometimes called emotionalism. Emotionalism, which, which James K.A. Smith, he calls it domesticating the transcendent. Domesticating the transcendent. In other words, when you domesticate something, you take it and you try to control it so that you can use it for something very specific, right? So when you domesticate a cow 
for milk, you basically do, you just control it, and everything that you do is designed to, to make sure you can get milk out of the cow. That's domesticating the cow. And in the same sense, there are certain streams of Christianity that seem to domesticate the transcendent in the sense that their religious activities, it's all about emotion. It's all about wanting to get this emotional experience from God, and so we're trying to control God and just get that from Him. So obviously, we don't want to domesticate the transcendence, but on, on, the, on the other hand, you know, I mean, if you love Bessie the cow, I mean, Bessie's a friend of yours, and, and you love Bessie, and she roams around, you don't, I mean, you don't domesticate her, you don't just try to keep her around for her milk, but, but you, you love her, and you're friends with her, you know, it's okay if you have a glass of milk from time to time, right? I don't know, maybe that's a horrible analogy, but... <laughs> You get my point. We don't want to domesticate God and just seek him only for some sort of emotional experience. But if this really is about loving God, that is unquestionably going to be a part of it. So we can't be afraid of emotion in church. And I'm just going to say, I think some of us here are afraid of emotion in church. I think we're afraid of showing emotion in church. And you know what I also think? What's interesting is that I think that some of us who are afraid of showing emotion in church are also people who often will say things like, I would love to experience more of God's presence in my life. And I'm thinking, how many of us are like that? You're kind of afraid to show emotion in your life, but you kind of wish that you experienced more of God in your life. And I want to say that if we understand, this isn't just about learning about God, it's about coming to love God. We need to not be afraid of emotion in church. I encourage you to sing out because we're after the heart. We're not, just, we're not just after the mind. So our r- religious activities are designed to help us put on Christ, to enable Christ to rule in our hearts. And this allows us to really hone in on why it is that we come here. Why is it that we gather here on Sunday morning? And I want to start by, by saying what it's not, helping us to understand what it's not, and then what it, what it is will come in to greater focus, greater clarity. We are not here to try to get God to love us. We are not here to try to get God to love us. And I think that some of us, that's whether consciously or even subconsciously, that's how we end up approaching religion. It's like, I've, I've got to go to church or I'm not a very good Christian. I've got to go to church or, you know, God's, you know, he's, he's going to look unfavorably upon me. And, and the reality is if you have a, a culture where people kind of think that way, then we also end up feeling like, well, if I don't go to church, then the church community is going to think less of me as well. Because what you think about God affects how the community operates, and so you start thinking, oh, I've got to go to church because God's, if I've missed so many, God must not love me and the community must not love me. And so then what motivates you to go is trying to get God to love you. And I'll tell you, if that's what motivates you, it's going to absolutely destroy you. It'll just become this sort of dead ritualism. It's like, I mean, have you ever been in a relationship with a person where it's just like you feel like you have to keep trying to get them to love you. Like what you do is never enough, and you just have to keep going and going and going, and you just never know when they're going to be kind of tired of you. I mean, if you've ever been in that kind of a relationship, you know eventually you just kind of burn out. You just can't take it anymore. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. We cannot be coming to church because, we, we, because we're trying to get God to love us. 
That's not why we're here. Secondly, and this is the one that might surprise you a little bit, we're not coming simply to show God that we love Him. We're not coming simply to show God that we love Him. Now, that's certainly true, and we want that to be the case more and more. We want that to be the case, and that certainly emerges in this passage when it says, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So certainly, I mean, that, that we want that to, to happen, but that's not, we're not simply here to show God that we love Him. In other words, there's something even, I would say, almost more foundational, because if all this is about is simply showing God that we love Him, let me tell you something. If all this is about is showing God that we love Him, then I would say that what we do on Sunday mornings is relatively unimportant. Because listen, if, if, if the reason we're here is to show God that we love Him, there are much more important ways to show God that we love Him than to sing songs and listen to a sermon. There are much more important ways to show God that we love Him than to sing songs and listen to a sermon. You know, in, in the Gospel of John, the end of Jesus' ministry, very end here, after his death and resurrection, we have this famous scene where, where he's with Peter. And he says to Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do, Lord. And what does Jesus say to him? Does he say, then sing me a song? No, he doesn't say sing me a song. He says, feed my sheep. If you love me, care for my people. If you love me, and this is what we find throughout the scriptures, the primary way in which we show God that we love him is by caring for other people. Uh, The primary way in which we show God that we love him is by exercising patience and kindness and throwing off rage and anger and malice. You see, actually, this entire passage, verses 1 through 17, is really all about how to love God. It's by putting off sin and clothing ourselves with these good deeds. This whole thing is about how to love God. You'll notice there's really only one verse that even talks about religion or worship. Because Paul's, look, he's saying if you want to love, you want to show God that you love him, you don't sing him a song. I mean, look, in my own, <laughs> in my own relationship with my wife, right? I mean, you know, sing, I, sometimes I'll sing for my wife. And, and that's nice, Right? And she feels loved, but I tell you what, she feels a whole lot more loved when I clean up after dinner, when I'm, you know, around to help with the kids, when I sit and listen to her, when I, when I work hard to provide for my family. I mean, singing her a song's nice. I, I think I shared the story of a friend of mine who, he wrote a song for his wife, and he sang it to her. It's all about how he loves her, and he loves her. Oh, you're so wonderful, baby. And after he sang the song to her, he's expecting her to, you know, just melt, Right? And she just starts crying, and she goes, our relationship is nothing like that. Uh, he's probably thinking, well, you know, I haven't really been, been around much. I haven't really helped out with the dishes, so I know I'll sing her a song. And I wonder if some of us, maybe that's kind of our perspective with God. Well, I'll just go to church and sing out and show him that I love him. And the, the, the point is, you know, God is not, God is not, um, one of the groupies in the movie Almost Famous. In the movie Almost Famous, I'll explain it to you. There's a, it's about a rock band, right? And they, they travel around the country, and they've got these groupies, right? The groupies get on the bus with them, follow them around everywhere they go. 
And the band is always taking advantage of the groupies, just using them for whatever, not, not always being very kind to them. But the groupies, they, like, they don't seem to care as long as they keep getting to hear them sing. As long as they keep getting to hearing them sing, then they feel love. God is not like one of the groupies in Almost Famous. This is why I said that religion can be dangerous. Religion can actually become an excuse for bad behavior. Like, oh, yeah, I go to church, and I sing, and I I worship God, and I tell him how great he is. So I guess it doesn't really matter that I haven't been very honest in my business dealings. It doesn't matter that I, you know, uh, am becoming more and more materialistic every day. That stuff doesn't matter because I'm going to church, and I'm telling God. I mean, you see, if we think that the church is fundamentally about showing God that we love him, it can actually become an excuse for bad behavior. So what is it? Foundationally, what emerges from this text? Why are we here? It's not to get God to love us. It's not even simply to show God that we love Him, though we certainly hope that that happens. It's to get us to love God. We come here to get us to love God. That's what he's getting at here. He's, he's saying, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He's saying, he's saying let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's, he's talking about how do I get my heart to love God, and then he goes on and he gives us these religious activities here. We come to church to get ourselves to love God. Because here's the thing, once again, if we're here to, to simply show God uh, that we love him, here's another problem with it. The reality is that for many of us on a lot of Sundays, it just makes us into hypocrites. Because is it not true that there are plenty of Sunday mornings when we come in here and we sing songs and our heart is not in it? That what we're saying with our lips does not resonate with what's going on in our heart. My suspicion is is that may have been the case for some of you this morning. I mean, we sang a song this morning. The line goes, Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Now, how many of us, quite frankly, did you come in and sing that? Yeah, you weren't really all that joyous. You really adore God? Is that really where your heart is, where your desires are? So there's this disconnect between what we're singing and what's going on in our hearts. And I think, honestly, some of us even feel like hypocrites. I've had conversations with people like this. We're like, I don't even know if I should sing the lyrics to the song because I feel like a hypocrite. Here's, and so it becomes, right, it's this sort of going through the motions kind of deal. And here's the point. Going through the motions is only a bad thing. If you're trying to get God to love you or you're trying to show God that you love him when your heart really doesn't, but listen to this. Going through the motions is not a bad thing if what you're trying to do is get you to love him. Now, going through the motions actually becomes part of the way in which you cultivate your heart to love God. That going through the motions can be a good thing because it's, it's starting to work in your, your body and the way you're singing it, and, it's, and it can actually begin to shape your heart. In fact, this very tension, we find it in many of the songs that we sing. The very first song that we sang this morning... I love it because it, 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 in the verses, it sings to God. 
And it says, you're rich in love and slow to anger. It goes on with all these things about God you are, God you are. And then in the chorus, you know what it says? It says, bless the Lord, Lord, oh my soul. In other words, you start singing to yourself. So you go from singing to God to bless the Lord, oh my soul. In other words, you're trying to, come on, soul, get your act together. Come on, soul, bless him. Don't you realize that he's, he's rich in love and slow to anger? And so in that song is this contradiction. It's like, listen, this is what's true. Come on, soul. Don't you realize that that's true? And then we sing the song, O Great God. And the first line says, O Great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. You see what that's saying? Oh, great God of heaven, that's what you are, but that's not where my heart is. And I need that. I want that to become a reality. And then the first line of probably my favorite hymn, which we didn't sing today because we sing it a lot. I felt like I needed to give it a rest. The first line says this. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Think about that. Come, come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. You see the the irony that you're already singing. It's almost admitting that you're a hypocrite. I'm singing it, but I need you to tune my heart so that it's real. You see, we, we come to church, we come to church not to get God to love us or even simply to show him that we love him, lest we really be hypocrites a lot on some Sundays. We're coming as much to get our hearts to love God. So I encourage you to sing out. I encourage you to sing out even if your heart isn't with it because maybe through singing it, it will move in that direction. I'll never forget. I'll never forget someone who said to me after church one Sunday. He said, Kevin, it seems like your preaching is getting better every week. And then he said, or it might be that I'm just getting less bitter. And I thought, you know, I hope my preaching's getting better, but I'm not sure that's it. I think that maybe your heart is starting to warm up to who God is. And so this individual, you know, obviously when he had been coming at first, He's going through the motions. I mean, this is an individual who's just bitter. And so when, he, when he's singing and listening to the sermon, his heart is not in it. He's just going through the motions. But as long as he's not going through the motions in order to get God to love him or to fake that he loves God, but he's actually trying to get God to love him, that's precisely what this is all about. So we got to go on a sabbatical. Had two months where I had no obligations to be in church, and I was wondering, would I, would I want to go? Would I want to just relax? Would I, what would I want to do? And I'm going to tell you what, we went every Sunday, except one, uh, logistical reasons. Uh, we were traveling and couldn't go on one Sunday, but we went to church every other Sunday, a lot of different churches, and it gave me an opportunity to reflect on why I was going. And I realized I wasn't going to get God to love me. I know the gospel. I've been preaching this for years. I know this, that God doesn't love me more because I go to church. I wasn't going to get God to love me. 
And quite honestly, I don't know that I was going because I was just dying to show God how much I love him. I mean, sometimes it was a little bit that way, but quite frankly, I'm not really sure that that was the, the, the main motivation. The main motivation was I did not want to lose my love for God. I didn't want to lose it. I just wanted it to grow. And I'm like, if you don't go to church for two months... What is going to happen to your love for God? And I was, I'm like, you might lose it. Who knows where it could be? And so I was going because I, I wanted to cultivate this love for God in my life. Why do we come to church? We don't come to church to get God to love us or even simply to show God that we love Him. We come to get our hearts to love God. And nothing, nothing captures that quite as well as communion. In just a few moments, we're going to take communion. Musicians, you guys can go ahead and, and come on up. Ushers, you can come on forward, come forward as well. In just a few moments, we're going to take communion. And what is communion? What is communion about? What are we doing with communion? one of the things that I think is really important for us to understand is that, you see, communion, communion captures this really well because communion gets at more than just the mind. If all I wanted to do was convince your mind, if all we were after was the mind, I would give you a lecture on substitutionary atonement. But that's not what we're after. We're after the heart. And so there's something about there's something about taking these elements, even the physicality of it. There's something about it that can drive the truth of the gospel deeper beyond your mind and, and into your heart. And of course, why do we take communion? Well, we don't take communion to get God to love us. We don't take communion to show God that we love Him. He's not impressed that you can eat a wafer and drink grape juice. We're not doing this to show God. Don't do this to show God that you love Him. Don't do this to try to get God to love you because that's the complete opposite of what this symbolizes. What does communion symbolize? It's that God loves us simply on the basis of His grace. And that as we come to the table, we can come and we can confess the ways in which we have not put sin to death that we have lived in sin and malice and immorality and whatever we can come, we can confess that before a gracious and loving God. We can come before God and we can confess the hypocrisy of our worship, <laughs> that our hearts are not always in line with our words, but by His grace, He accepts it and receives it and loves us. You see, nothing will make you love God more than coming to know how much God loves you. Will you bow your heads with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for your abundant grace. We praise you that you are a a God who longs for us to come, to be in relationship with you. God, that you 
you pursue us and not the other way around. God, may we come, as we come to church in coming weeks, may we come, Lord, knowing that you've already come, that you're here. You're the one coming after us. You're the one trying to turn our hearts to you. You are the one wooing us, Lord. God, as we come before the table, may we receive that grace. May we receive that forgiveness. May we see how much you love us. And may that in turn propel us to love you and to love others. Pray this in Jesus' name.